Uh, most of you know, but if you don't, I had the incredible privilege of growing up in the beautiful, dare I say, the colorful state of Colorado. It was an amazing place to grow up. One of the things I cherish most is when I was growing up, I had the opportunity to go camping at least once a month, most often uh, with my dad, but sometimes with other families as well. We would go up to places like the Rocky Mountain National Park and just camp for the weekend. It really, really was a treasure. But as I've, as I've come to learn, it seems that when I was young, uh, I was a bit of a pyromaniac. Turns out that I liked playing with fire more than I probably should have, because inevitably when you go camping, you have to start a campfire. And I was always the first person to volunteer to start said campfire. It was fun from my perspective to see something that began as nothing and then suddenly it was a ball of flames. I, I thought that was apparently more fun than it's supposed to be. I remember when I was about 12 years old, uh, my dad and I went camping with our next door neighbors, Jay and Fred Binkley. And we were, we were up, of course, in Rocky Mountain National Park. And we were given the rare privilege, Jay and I, were given the rare privilege to camp on our own that night. Now, by own, that basically meant that my dad and Fred were, you know, I don't know, 400 feet that way. It wasn't like we were on one mountain and they were on another, right? That's not the case. It's just that we were given space to just be. And so, Jay and I, in our 12-year-old wisdom, said, you know what we need? Fire. And so, we created sort of a fire pit that we could create a campfire, and then we went to the hunt of all things kindling and wood that could be burned. And as it turns out, that particular time, as we tried to light the fire, it wouldn't light. It could be because things were too wet, I, I don't really know. But Jay, Jay had the brilliant idea that, you know what we need? We need something to accelerate the flames. Sure, why not? That sounds like a great idea. So what does he have? Well, he has a bottle of lighter fluid. Now, I don't know if you know this, but technically you're supposed to put the lighter fluid on, say, charcoal, right, or the wood. Uh, not Jay. We, we had this tiny little bit of flame that was in the fire pit, and then he sprayed the bottle of lighter fluid. Now, what's really interesting, and I don't know the science behind it, but if one of you does, I'd love to talk to you afterwards, but the flame that was in the fire pit traveled up the stream to the bottle of lighter fluid, at which point Jay, recognizing that the fire was coming towards him, tossed the bottle of lighter fluid, which landed, here it is, outside the fire pit. So the fire that was supposed to be contained inside the fire pit was now outside the fire pit. And quite frankly, Jay and I had a moment where we knew, we knew we were going to make the evening news because a wildfire in Colorado, two 12-year-old boys are now spending the night in jail. Like we knew that that was the inevitable end of what was happening. And so you can imagine as our 12-year-old selves, we're thinking like, how are we going to stop this thing? Now, by God's grace, I think because he didn't want to see me in jail, by God's grace, we were able to put out that fire. And I remember my dad saying, you know, boys, you have to be careful. Fire is quite uncontrollable. Well, that night, Jay and I decided, you know what we don't need tonight? We don't need a fire. And so we, we just spent the rest of the night without any kind of fire because we were afraid right, that this fire would again be uncontrollable controlled. 
Well, t- today, friends, we celebrate Pentecost, this birthday of the church, when God's church is born, what we know to be the gathering of God's saints under the mission to reach the nations with the gospel, on this day in history, it was born. And for lots of us, probably, if you've grown up in and around the church, the story of Pentecost is a familiar one. But I want us to get back into this text this morning and ask some questions about what's really happening here. So if you want to grab a Bible, I'd encourage you to do that. You can grab paper, one you brought, the one that's in the pew. You can use something digital. That's fine too. And we're going to go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, which recounts for us this story of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, beginning right at verse 1. Acts chapter 2, beginning right at verse verse 1. Now, a little bit of context, this is, this is after the resurrection, this is after the ascension, so Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he's now ruling in power and authority. It's about 10 days later, and Luke tells us here in verse 1 of chapter 2, uh, when the day of Pentecost came, they, that is the disciples, they were all together in one place. Now, from from what we know, we know that the disciples are gathered somewhere more likely than not inside. They're in the walls, at least, of a building. They're together in one place. When suddenly, Luke says, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, can, can we pause just long enough to say that it's weird that there's a windstorm inside of a building? Like, that's just odd. Like, let's, let's just say, like, yep, pastor, we agree. That seems weird to me. Now, for those of us like me, I grew up in and around this story. I just, I've heard it year after year after year. But it's weird, right? This windstorm, violent windstorm inside of a building. Uh, but it doesn't stop there. Verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Again, can we just say that it's weird? We started with a windstorm that's inside of a building, and now we have literally like heads on fire, right? This is like uncontrollable, literally fire sitting on the top of people's heads. So there's, there's fire that is burning, but not burning them. Again, can we, can we just say it's weird, right? Violent windstorm, now we got these tongues of fire sitting on the heads of the disciples, Verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They became multilingual all of a sudden. Like they were just gifted the ability to speak in other languages. Like Again, I've heard this story lots of times. And for whatever reason, for whatever reason, I've never seen it as weird. It was just a story that I heard. But, but I actually get, church, why some people, when they come to the stories of the Scripture, think like, that's weird. It is a little bit weird, right, that the disciples are here, there's a violent storm, there's tongues of fire, and they're multilingual. So what's going on? What's actually happening? What, what at first glance does look a little bit weird in the context of the larger narrative of the scriptures, it actually makes perfect sense. That what's happening in this moment is not the first time, in fact, 
when a violent wind has rushed in. It's not the first time when fire has been burning and it doesn't burn something up. This isn't the first time that God has used language to do something special. In fact, if we were to back up, if we were to go back into the Old Testament, into the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, we, we capture this beautiful story of Moses who's on a mountain. Now, he's not in the Rocky Mountain National Park, much to his bad, but it doesn't matter, right? He's, he's on a mountain nevertheless. And on that mountain, on that mountain, he comes in contact with a fire that is burning. Uh, but not burning things up. It is a fire that has lit a bush. But if we were to read in Exodus chapter 3, we'd see really quick that bush isn't actually burning up. It's just on fire in some really unique way. And from the, from the midst of that flame, from the midst of that fire, God speaks to Moses He says, Moses, listen, I need you to take your sandals off because this is holy ground. Not because the mountain is holy, but because God is present. Because the God who created the world, the God who knit together humanity, that God is present in this flame. God is, in many ways, locating himself in this burning bush that isn't burning. So in Exodus chapter 3, if we were just to look at the flame that's on fire but isn't burning, in Exodus chapter 3, it is indicative of God's presence on earth. He's locating himself somewhere. And it is from that bush, from that flame, that God would deliver to Moses his personal name. He would give the name Yahweh to Moses so that Moses can go on a mission, ultimately, for God to rescue his people out of the slavery of Egypt. Now, Moses would go, right? He would go, and he would go with God's presence really with him in a way that he's going to unload all of these plagues, and ultimately, the people of Israel are going to be catapulted out of Egypt, and Moses is going to lead them as they wander, ultimately, to the promised land. But if we were to recount those stories, and again, spend some time in the latter part of Exodus and in parts of Deuteronomy, what we would witness is God's people not necessarily being led by Moses, but by a pillar of cloud, a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of what by night? By fire. God's people are led by a flame that is burning, but not burning things up. God's people, as they wander through the desert, are being led literally by God's presence, either in cloud or flame. Now, if we we think about those wanderings and those people being led by this cloud and flame, They've also been given instructions to create the tabernacle, the place of worship for God's people. And so when they set up the tabernacle, when the tabernacle is constructed in their midst, God's presence, the book of Exodus will tell us, God's presence literally descends onto the tabernacle, either as a cloud or, can you guess, a flame. 
A flame that burns but doesn't burn up. God locating his presence, locating himself in the tabernacle. This is where God resides, in this tabernacle. And when it's time to move, God would leave the tabernacle. And as that cloud and fire, he would lead God's people until he stopped. They'd set up the tabernacle again, and guess what would happen? God would descend and locate himself in the tabernacle. Now, fast forward into the Old Testament, when Solomon finally builds the temple, the permanent structure for God's worship. At the completion of that temple, guess what happens? God locates himself, puts himself into that temple as a cloud, and can you guess, as a flame. It's interesting that throughout the Old Testament, this flame that burns but doesn't burn things up is indicative of God's presence. God is locating himself somewhere. He's locating himself in a bush. He's locating himself in the tabernacle. He's locating himself in the temple. He's leading God's people. But he's locating himself in that flame. Now fast forward to the day of Pentecost when the disciples are sitting in a room and there's this violent windstorm indoors and tongues of flame that seem to separate and land and then rest on the heads of disciples. You know, on one hand, the story could seem quite weird, but in the context of the larger Scripture's narrative, it starts to make sense. You see, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, God is again locating Himself. But different than the Old Testament where God would locate himself in the temple or in the tabernacle or in the bush on the mountain, God in Acts chapter 2 is locating himself, get this, in his people. God is locating himself in his people. Not in a building, not in a tent, not in a bush in his people. God's presence in you and in me. What's the result of God's presence? Why would God put his presence, why would he locate himself in you and me? Why would he locate himself in the disciples? And we pick up in verse chapter 5. Now there were, staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these all Galileans? Then how is it they know all of our native languages? Can I just say thank you to Sean, to Chris, who read this morning. Uh, that is a lot of words to have to spit out of your mouth from a lot of different nations, and it is quite hard. Quite honestly, there are people who come out like, Pastor, I have to read this. Can you tell me how to pronounce these words? And I always say, it doesn't matter. Nobody knows. Just say whatever you want. It's okay. Like nobody, it doesn't matter. Just say it. So thank you, Sean, for having to read all this. But man, there are people from every place, right? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, Rome, Crete, and Zareth. The list goes on and on and on. 
It is, a, it is a people from every nation who is, for the first time, now hearing the wonders and the works of God. How? Through His people. God has located himself in his people, not not in the tabernacle, not in the temple, not in the bush, in his people. And how are the nations actually hearing this good work of God? Through his people. See, Jesus, before he left, before he ascended, he gives the great commission that we are to make disciples. Make disciples of what? Of every nation. We are to walk with everyday people every day. Disciples of every nation. And how, how is God going to get the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the good news of death and resurrection into every crack and crevice of the good earth? How is he gonna get it to every nation? He's gonna locate himself in his people. He's not going to locate himself in the temple or the tabernacle or the bush. He's going to locate himself in his people. Because as his people, as his people go back into the places where they live and work and play, as the disciples would head out from this day back into those places where they live, work, and play, and as they began to proclaim what God has done for them, as they began to proclaim the good news of Christ Jesus risen from the dead. This good news would go out into all the earth. How do we make disciples of every nation when God locates himself in his people? Now it is a fun moment, I think, when all of these people are hearing the good news of Jesus in their own language, and they're like, nah, that's, that's weird, right? It's weird. You know how weird it is? These guys are taking up day drinking. That's what's happening here, right? That, that, that's the explanation. Peter, God bless Peter. Peter, who like just a few chapters ago was denying Jesus, is the guy who stands up and says, listen, <laughs> this is not about drinking wine in the morning time. This is actually about the prophecy that Joel spoke in Joel chapter 2. When Joel basically said to the people of Israel, God is going to do something new. What's that new thing? Joel says, God's going to pour out his spirit, listen, on all people. Joel is saying in Joel chapter 2, God is going to locate himself in his people. He goes on to say, even servants, both men and women, I'm going to pour out my spirit on them. What's happening this morning is actually the fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel 2, that God is doing a new thing, that he's going to locate himself in his people, that he's going to be present in them so that, so that the world might know the gospel, so that they might hear the good news. See, in many ways, I think there was a, There was a fire begun in the hearts of those disciples after Jesus ascended. Their hearts were burning 
for this good news of Jesus, this experience that they had had with the Savior of the world. There was a fire that had been begun in the hearts of the disciples. But the day of Pentecost is like an accelerant on that flame. This is God's uncontrollable spirit. And it's interesting that the accelerant for this uncontrollable spirit, this accelerant to see what happened in the hearts of a few disciples to the rest of the world, the accelerant is God's people. God locating himself in disciples. I remember on that mountain thinking with Jay, I wonder what would have happened if we weren't able to put that fire out. I mean, I'm thankful that I don't know. I gotta be honest, I'm really thankful that I don't know, but I do remember wondering. Like fire uncontrolled is a force to be reckoned with. What would have happened if we couldn't have controlled that fire? I wonder, church, I wonder what would happen if in like kind, as God pours out His Spirit into you and me, as He puts accelerant on that experience of the gospel in our own hearts, what would happen if we go back into the places where we live and work and play, knowing and trusting that God is in us? present with us, what would happen? I love at the end of chapter 2, this is about verse 41 if you're looking at it, what would happen if God would locate Himself and His people and His people would proclaim His good words and His deeds? What would happen? Verse 41, those who accepted the message that Peter preaches this message about Jesus crucified and risen from the dead, those who accepted His message were baptized, and about roughly, roughly, 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's uncontrollable. Imagine, imagine what would happen, church, if we trusted in the truth that God is in us, that He's located Himself in your heart and mind. And that by His Spirit, you and I have the same power that rose Jesus from the dead living in you and me. We have that same power living in you and me by the power of His Spirit. Imagine what would happen if the accelerant of God's people were sent back into the places where they live and work and play to proclaim the gospel with the people, everyday people, every day, what would happen? Friends, this is the calling of the church, not just Holy Cross, but the church that was birthed on the day of Pentecost, to go into all the nations proclaiming this good news, this gospel, and to do so trusting that God is in us, that He is present, that He's located Himself in you and me. Here in just a few minutes, we get to gather as a family around His table, and we get to take in bread and wine body and blood. We believe that Christ is present in that bread and wine, that He has located Himself 
in this meal so that we can take it in and be fueled by Him. So friends, as we come to the table this morning, we do so in joy, knowing that Christ longs, longs to be present in us for the sake of the nations. To God be the glory. Amen? And so may the peace of God which surpasses all human understanding may guard and keep our hearts in Christ Jesus today and every day. Amen.